Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pappas, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Krista Cronister, Vice Provost of Graduate Studies at the University of Oregon and Professor of Counseling Psychology in the College of Education. Cronister is known for her research on partner violence and survivors' vo vocational and economic development. She has published extensively on the impact of partner violence on women's work and career development, partner violence in Filipino communities, and partner violence and substance abuse in young adult relationships. She is the creator of the ACCESS intervention, one of the few interventions designed to promote the rehabilitation and career development of partner violence survivors. ACCESS is used nationally and available in English and Spanish. Among many accolades, Cronister was the American Psychological Association's recipient of the 2019 John Holland Award for Outstanding Achievement in Career and Personality Research and the Equity and Inclusion Award for the College of from the College of Education. Also, she was the 2014 Emerging Leader Award winner for the Association's Committee on Women in Psycholo Psychology Leadership. She earned her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Oregon in 2003. Thank you so much, Krista, for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Paul. It's nice to be here. First, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the Academy. Absolutely. Well, I was born and raised in Florida and grew up in a pretty middle income uh, family and wonderful neighborhood and didn't really think about school, but did well uh, in K through 12 systems. And so uh, had great people and mentors, uh, teachers and family members who said, go off to college. And so that was my introduction. And I actually went into community college first and loved that experience and an ardent advocate for uh, community colleges around the country. And then went to the University of Florida and earned my bachelor's degree in uh, psychology. Oregon was not known to me. It wasn't a blip in my thinking, but uh, I received some recruitment materials and thought this is interesting. So I appreciated what the program had to offer in counseling psychology, decided to take a risk. And oddly enough, that is where I am today. I came out in 1996 to get my graduate degrees and have never left. So Tell us what led to your interest in partner violence and its repercussions. I fell into it by accident. When I entered into graduate school to begin my PhD, I wanted to get more clinical experience and women's space here in Lane County was one organization that made it very easy for people to access volunteer opportunities and provide an array of training to do so. So I did that and having a bachelor's degree, I needed much training. And I became a longtime volunteer for the next five years and learned so much about the cycles of domestic violence, uh, the children's needs, families' needs, how services were run and managed, how we were serving women and their families very well, and then also how our services might have been maintaining the status quo and actually hurting women and children's chances to get out of violent relationships. So tell us a little bit more about the focus of your research in particular. The focus of my research is on how domestic violence affects survivors' educational and economic development. And usually those two things are categorized under the term vocational development or career development. And I became interested in that because after volunteering at Women's Space and working very closely with survivors and service providers, 
I recognize that women returned uh, to the shelter or to services up to nationally seven to eight times, and we were seeing that at Women's Space as well, before they were actually able to get out of an abusive situation. And one of the key factors that we know now that helps uh, survivors get out of relationships that are harmful is financial resources. And I recognize that our services were attending to women's short-term financial needs and immediate employment needs, and neither really addressed a longer-term economic stability that's critical for staying out of an abusive relationship and ending this cycle of returning seven to eight times. And that's where I wanted to focus my research. And at that time, there was almost none existing. So I felt very grateful uh, to be one of the people who was able to contribute to the literature at that time. I understand that another part of your contribution is your focus on the role of family and friends in the support for victims of partner abuse. Tell us a little bit about that aspect of your work. That's true. And that is a more recent focus in the past five to seven years. As I've worked with social service providers to really look at how our services help survivors, one of the key things that we try to break down in our scholarship is the assumption that social services are the end-all be-all for helping survivors. And what we know is that fewer survivors actually access those services, and we definitely cannot assume that they're helpful. And so we know that 98% of all survivors reach out and tell someone, a family member or friend or coworker, not a service provider, that they are experiencing partner violence. And that's an incredible point of contact. If we could support those families, members, those friends, those coworkers, at the point of when a survivor discloses and starts to build a relationship that it, from which they may seek help or they may just seek comfort, we could really have an impact on the types of resources that survivors are open to and can access. But again, at the time and still today, very few researchers or scholars and certainly our social service agencies have paid attention to nurturing family and friend relationships and using that as the point of intervention rather than a brick and mortar social service agency. So given your focus on um... The, the vocational implications and the need for vocational support and your focus on families in, in this process. Tell us a little bit more about what you found about how partner abuse affects education and career development uh, among survivors. The effects are pretty devastating, both in the short term and the long term. Uh, economic trajectories for women are severely hampered uh, when they experience domestic violence. Um, specifically, we found that uh, partners sabotage women's ability to go to work, go to school, their ability to complete work and school related tasks, um, which then prohibits them from advancing in their careers, completing their degrees, and then subsequently obtaining work that allows them to, to advance economically. Tactics that partners use can range from the more obvious or well-known emotional and physical abuse tactics, but also what we've been trying to um, highlight is the idea of taking car keys so that you can't go to work or go to school, um, requiring women to stay up and not sleep so that they can't concentrate and perform well in school, 
throwing away or destroying materials and homework and other necessities that are required to complete the work. The tactics are quite insidious and highlighting those has been a real um, effort um, of, for my work over the years. Another area of particular focus in your work is the uh, partner abuse in the Filipino community. Tell us a little bit about what you found in that work. Yeah, I became interested in that partly because I am half Filipino. My mom immigrated in the 70s from the Philippines. And so I am very connected with those communities and am one of the few scholars interested in understanding partner violence in Filipino communities. It's a very neglected area of research. And I became interested. I was hesitant at first. I thought, well, who am I to forge the path? And then a lot of my supportive scholars in the Filipino community said, who are you not to? Who else is doing it? And I thought, well, that's a great point. So I have a wonderful team of graduate students who I have recruited from all over the world and the, and the country to help with that. Um, my current students are specialized in studying uh, domestic violence in Filipino communities, speak different languages. And so it's been wonderful to work with students to advance can we understand how domestic violence looks in Filipino communities and how those networks of family and friends respond to survivors? What can we learn that they do that is really helpful, that survivors experience as comforting and liberating? And what are we doing in our communities that is not helpful? Uh, and from that knowledge, how can we construct different services for survivors and their families? Can you tell us a little bit about the findings or is it too early to ask you that question? Uh, no, we have just completed a two-year study of talking with families, uh, family members and friends of Filipino survivors. And the interviews that we conducted with them were very rich and edifying. What we found was that uh, quite a few things. Family and friends try a diverse array of strategies to help their survivors. They want to help. They don't always help, but they want to help. The intention is there. We found that family and friends uh, listen. They try to advise. They try to connect their family member or friends with resources by either providing them over text, driving them. They help supplement their lost income and lost work hours by either providing financial resources or working at their jobs for them. They had jobs that somehow allowed for that. We also found that there were significant cultural norms that affected how family and friends helped. So for example, saving face was an important piece. And so family and friends often waited for survivors to initiate conversations and to guide the conversations so that they didn't uh, cause their family, their loved one to lose face. There were pros and cons that family and friends voiced about that strategy. There were also cultural values like which is leave it to God or leave it to destiny that we found some used as a reason to not interfere in their family members' lives, and also that survivors found prevented them from seeking outside resources they trusted in a faith. That faith often was very supportive and helped them survive certain aspects, but also definitely affected how upfront and how family members and friends could connect 
their loved ones with what resources. Um, and we're still diving into exactly how that works. That's, that's fascinating, fascinating work. Um, I'm sure many people are wondering, and I, I, we've heard about, but tell us a little about, about what you have found about the impact of the pandemic on rates and the nature of partner abuse. Yeah, nationwide scholars have been looking at that and around the world. The pandemic definitely increased rates of partner violence. And the reason why we know that is because when the pandemic started, calls in for emergency domestic violence services increased, reports of such crimes to the police increased, and they increased dramatically. The need for shelter for families and women increased dramatically, and uh, Zoom calls and telephone calls to crisis lines increased, and at different rates around different countries, but certainly in the United States as well. The, an abusive partner's greatest tactic is isolation. Usually the pattern of abuse is first that you will lose contact and connection with your loved one because the abuser is isolating them. And when you're able to isolate a survivor, you're able to um, hide bruises, hide physical abuse and an emotional abuse and sexual abuse. You're able to create a bubble in which the survivor has no outside input, care, love and support to help combat the effects of the abuse. And you also isolate from services, from work, all kinds of network resources that could help foster the resilience of a survivor. And that is what happens. Uh, we found that abusers were more able to isolate, but also used COVID specific tactics, such as I will call your boss and tell them that you have COVID, but you're going to work still. I um, don't think you should see your family because it's irresponsible. We might all get COVID. You're a horrible person for jeopardizing your family's health and other such related specific strategies. So you created the ACCESS program. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the ACCESS program and why it's an important program. The ACCESS program I designed is a brief group career counseling intervention that social service providers or educators may offer for survivors of partner violence. It's designed to really unite the mental health and trauma healing needs with the vocational development and work needs of survivors. At the time that I created the intervention, most of our services were isolated or siloed. So women had to go to one building for work counseling and career counseling. They had to go to another building or service for their mental health and trauma healing. And then they had to go to another service for domestic violence specific resources. That was inefficient and ineffective. So the idea was, could we create something that was brief, given the crisis-oriented nature of their lives or lack of safety to engage longer-term in services? That addressed all of those. And if we could address the intersections of all of those needs, we hypothesized that we'd be able to facilitate their rehabilitation more effectively than those services alone. So it's five sessions, and each session, is it's a sequence. We focus on their accomplishments and goals, development of work-related and life skills, as well as mental health and stress, stress, stress coping skills. We focus on short and long-term goal development and support network development. And at the end of the intervention, we try to uh, measure and help survivors plan and kind of achieve their early career-related goals. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, you were appointed as the Vice Provost for Graduate Studies in June of 2021. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how your past administrative roles, which you've had a number of, have prepared you for this position? I think it 
prepared me in terms of knowing that inhabiting an administrative position was possible, that I could do it, could learn. Uh, and that kind of confidence is really important when you jump to such roles. I also think it's taught me how to take on multiple stakeholder perspectives. I think the gift of administrators is that they are hearing from all people, good things and complaints. And it's quite the tactic to hold all perspectives and the validity of all of them, but also to figure out how to bridge when making hard decisions. And I think those prior positions also prepared me to make hard decisions where you will always be disappointing some group or maddening some group. And yet you have to hold a focus and hold at center, what is your priority? And for this position, I'm really excited that it's graduate student well-being and success and impact. And that's a really easy one for me to hold at center given I've been doing, I've been in graduate education for 18 plus years now. So in both your research and your administrative work, you've centered diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Tell us how you understand the importance and benefits of such a focus. I think most of our social problems, the pernicious social problems that we have, and the problems in students' um, access to our education and their success along the pipeline are related to access to equitable information uh, and opportunities, feeling included, that our processes and our content and our programs is inclusive and rich and welcoming of the diversity that we all need and should be benefiting from in our disciplines. And so the, I hold that at center. When I think about domestic violence, I know that inequities in economics, um, monetary distribution, work opportunities, all of housing, all of those increase risk for domestic violence. And there's no way to solve it unless you address those inequities. And there's also no way to, to address it unless you include the diversity of ways in which communities effectively protect their women and their families. Similarly with graduate education, our students who are not able to succeed, who have a negative experience here versus a positive one, if we had created certain or different processes for them, nurtured them in ways that where their, their culture, their life experiences were valued and affected our teaching and our, our research, they would succeed at far greater rates than they are. Why are graduate students and graduate studies crucial to the success of a research university like the U of L? Absolutely. They forward and advance our research mission in several different ways. And the first is they serve as bridges to our communities. When they come to campus, they are bringing a wealth of skills, knowledge, cultural experiences, um, and gifts and talents that should be affecting how we teach how we look at knowledge, what questions we ask, how we do our science, and ultimately how effectively we solve social problems and make the world better for all. So serving as bridges is key. They also are teachers and they are research lab coordinators and project coordinators um, across campus. So they are driving our research projects and our answering of scientific questions on a daily basis. And then there are translators. They help disseminate that research and when they cross back over that bridge into their communities, they serve as leaders in figuring out how to take what they've learned in our science and making it work for their communities. How many grad students are enrolled at the U of O? We currently have about 3,700 graduate students enrolled. So tell us about, you've, you've spoken about grad students as researchers. There are also many grad students are also graduate employees. They also work for the university. So tell us a little bit about 
how you understand the importance of that, of, of their uh, contribution as employees. Yes, we have about 86% of all PhD students uh, funded on graduate employee, uh, with graduate employee positions. They are critical to running the university. They serve as teachers, administrative help, mentors, research assistants and coordinators, teaching assistants. Our university runs because they're a critical part of the employee pool. And I think they're an important part because they help bridge and role model for our undergraduates and help us as faculty communicate more effectively as we get older, but our students don't necessarily always get older. And so they are really critical to the mission. And I think one of the things about this position as vice provost is that I get to work with the GTFF leadership. And that has taught me an immense amount about graduate employees' experiences and needs and what they advocate for. Tell us about um, the ways in which the Division of Graduate Studies uh, provides help for professional development of graduate students. We focus primarily on research-oriented and writing professional development. So we spend several tens of thousands of dollars each year uh, paying for outside and internal services in writing, manuscript publishing. It is the number one need voiced by graduate students is assistance with writing and particularly international students for obvious reasons. Writing in English and publishing in American journals uh, is very difficult or more difficult. Secondly, we focus on professional development and research access. Uh, how to obtain a research mentor, how to obtain and apply for and secure research funding, how to advocate for yourself. Those are the two primary areas that we're focusing on right now. But I believe that in the next several years, and especially in the next 12 months, we will expand that portfolio quite a bit. And one of the areas we want to focus on more intensely is career development of our students. Do they understand what career pathways are available to them outside of the academy? And how do we help them succeed in securing those positions? Let's talk a little bit more about that. One of the phenomena that has happened in the academy since I've, I've, I'm, 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 I've been in the the profession for about 30 years, is that it's become more and more difficult for students with PhDs to seek employment within the academy. Tell us a little bit about the ways the Division of Graduate Studies helps recent PhDs seek uh, and develop careers outside of the academy. I don't think the division does currently. And I think that's why it's such an important initiative for me to get going with our staff. We are concerned about it. It is not appropriate or ethical, in my opinion, to continue to enroll large amounts of graduate students who are prepared for academic jobs that don't exist. So we have to prepare differently. Right now, what we do is we bridge and partner with the Tyson Hall, our career center advising, and we have a wonderful uh, staff uh, at our disposal who we can collaborate with around graduate student career advising. But that needs to be greatly expanded, both at the division level, but in how we support faculty in designing curriculum and preparation activities so that it's more local and how students are prepared. So your office also collaborates with the Office of Research and Innovation. Will you say a little bit about that relationship and those collaborations? Sure. The primary collaboration that we engage in is funding of graduate students and helping them secure research funding. So the OVPRI and the division uh, both fund training grants, external fellowships, and research grants. And we partner financially on that. 
The OVPRI and I also are um, collaborating on offering professional development workshop series that facilitate securing that research. Um, everything from how to teach students who aren't familiar with the academy, how to advocate and for nominations for such awards. We have a ton of students who are international, first generation, underrepresented, who don't even know that they qualify, that they have the right to ask their faculty to nominate them and how to do so. And so that's been a real emphasis that we've been working on. In addition to the more basics of what's the process of applying for a research funding grant, what is the pivot database, and finding funding for the humanities, I must say, Paul, is critical. We have so many humanities faculty and subsequent, obviously, then their graduate students who don't understand how much funding is available for their research. And that is something I aim to change. So you've now um, mentioned a couple of goals that you have for the Division of Graduate Studies, the goal of providing more um, professional development for uh, graduate students who would not go into the academy. And you've just talked about building um, uh, consciousness, awareness among humanities faculty and humanities students about funding opportunities. Do you have any other uh, larger goals that you, you've set for yourself? We do. Two additional goals come to mind. The, the first of those two is increasing our interdisciplinary programming. I think that most of the challenges to our greater common good and need and necessitate interdisciplinary focus. It's no longer can we work in isolation, and I don't think many of us have, but we need a more concerted effort in terms of our curricular offerings in producing scholars who know how to do interdisciplinary research. So we have, we're working on a curriculum process that facilitates that. The provost is working on a structural kind of an infrastructure that facilitates interdisciplinary programming. And so that is a large goal of shepherding faculty in the process of creating those interdisciplinary programs. And I think the second of those foci, as well as the career development piece, is increasing and diversifying our graduate student enrollment and educational access. We are behind as a university in online programming and particularly for master's students. And there, I understand the hesitancy to engage in online program, I truly do. But if there's one thing that the pandemic taught us is that it's possible and it can gain us access to brilliant students who deserve an opportunity at our, at our programs. Um, and so how to do that in diversifying, continuing our goals of rural populations, racial ethnic minorities, international students. And I think that if we can diversify our curriculum, we will diversify our student enrollment. A really laudable goal, um, fascinating. Um, I, I, we're coming to the end of our time. This will be my last question, I think. Um, jobs, administrative jobs like the one you have uh, take a lot of time and a lot of mental space. Are you managing while you do your administrative duties to continue your research? And if you are, how are you managing it? Thankfully, I am. It's definitely scaled back for obvious reasons, focusing on the administrative piece of my job. But part of what I'm glad to do is I have two doctoral students that I have agreed to, obvious, to finish out until they graduate. I'm not accepting new students. 
but they keep me engaged in our projects. And we are working currently on two projects. Uh, one is a national survey of domestic violence social service agency staff members and looking at how they engage family and friends in their services. It's really a baseline look at where are we starting? We know they, they are not trained or funded to do it well, but we need some baseline data to see where we are. And then secondly, we are uh, conducting a study with our partners in Australia around how COVID has impacted survivors' experiences of domestic violence, work, and healthcare access. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing those data come to fruition in the winter term and hopefully disseminating the results in spring and summer of next year. Well, thank you, Krista, for talking with us today. It's been fascinating to learn about your research and about your vision for the Division of Graduate Studies at the University of Oregon. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure as well. I've been speaking with Krista Cronister, Vice Provost of Graduate Studies at the University of Oregon and Professor of Counseling Psychology in the College of Education. Thanks so much for watching.